Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 in your Bibles. The title of this message is Trusting God When We'd Rather Not. And if we were to be honest, there are those times where it's difficult to trust God. And in our flesh, we'd rather not. It seems the easy way out to not to trust the Lord, to not be obedient in certain circumstances, but that's never true. It's always best to obey the Lord and to trust the Lord. And that was a difficulty that the Hebrews were encountering. It was getting difficult, hard for them to follow Jesus Christ. And it seemed to them that it'd be easier not to trust the Lord through the persecution of the Roman Empire. Empire directed at Christians. And of course, a major theme of this book is the authors encouraging them to trust the Lord, even when they'd rather not, even in difficult times. So let's pray and get into it. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us. And Lord, we just want to repent for the times where we take your word too lightly, that we read it and we see it as optional, and it's not. The commands are clear. They're not optional. These aren't suggestions. They're directives. They're not maybes. They're precepts. They're not gray areas. They're absolutes. And Lord, we're sorry for the times that we read it and we don't do it. I confess, even in my own life, Lord, that's too often. We ask that you would exalt the person of Jesus Christ and the written word of God so much in our hearts and minds that it would seem ridiculous not to obey. It would seem absurd not to heed. It would be outlandish not to simply follow. Help us, Lord. We confess that we're wayward. We confess that we are too often lethargic in our spirituality. But we've come here looking for more. We want to be revived by you. Lord, would you revive this congregation? Would you revive us this morning? Would you bring us into a fiery love relationship with you? Do a work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Search us and see where we're lazy and wayward. Get us back on track, Lord, even in the difficult things. And increase faith this morning, Lord. We believe, but help our unbelief. We trust, but forgive us and help us where we're not trusting. Do a work in our hearts. Make us doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, Lord. Holy Spirit, please help me to communicate in a way that honors Jesus Christ and is true to your word. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, last week we looked at chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, and that stern warning against falling away. And here's the bottom line. No matter how you interpret that passage, you just don't want to be that person. No matter how you interpret it, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy that's falling away, no matter what that might mean, and different people interpret it differently. No matter what that truth is, you don't want to be that guy. And the truth is, there's no reason for any of us to be that person that is falling away. Amen? There's no reason for that. But what we realize as we're studying the book of Hebrews is that some of us may be in certain ways, heading in that direction. And the book of Hebrews gives us clear warnings about what it looks like to head in that direction, to head in the direction of falling away from Jesus Christ. And the first warning that we are told is in chapter 2, verse 1, and that's not to drift. We need to be careful not to drift. 
Now, drifting happens when we don't pay close attention to what we hear and what we read. When we don't pay close attention to the word of God. When it becomes optional for us. When it becomes sort of like a hobby for us. When we become connoisseurs of sermons and, and we like to hear and we like to have our ears tickled, but we're not really committed and devoted and purposeful in following and responding. And so when we don't pay close attention, we will begin to drift from the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so chapter two, verse one says, we must therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it. And then we're told that there's a progression from drifting to the hardening of the heart. Chapter three speaks of this, the hardening of the heart. Now, the hardening of the heart happens when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. We know what God wants us to do. We're able to discern and hear what he's calling us to do, but we refuse to do it. Chapter three puts it this way. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And every time we hear the voice of the Lord saying, do this or stop that or, or follow in this way, and we refuse to do it, our hearts become calloused. The hearts become hard. They, they, they develop this resistance to the thing of God. Our, our conscience becomes seared. And when you continue in disobedience, there will come a time where you think, well, God stopped busting my chops about that. That's what will happen. You think, well, it must be okay now. It must have won away. That's not what happened. It's not so much that the Holy Spirit stopped convicting you. It's that your heart got hard. Your heart got hard. And it's more difficult for you to hear and to respond. And that is an incredibly dangerous place to be in. We need to cultivate obedience, which yields in us a soft heart to the Lord. But if our drifting goes on, the hardening into the heart starts to take place, then what happens, point number three, is we become dull of hearing, or as another translation puts it, spiritually dull. We talked about in our lesson a couple weeks ago that that word dull means lazy, lethargic, stupid. We become spiritually stupid, lazy, and, and lethargic, and this happens when we don't pay close attention to what we've heard and we don't obey what God is calling us to do, we become dull of hearing, spiritually dull. And what the book of Hebrews all these weeks has been urging us to do is to examine ourselves. And we've got to do this on a continual basis. Examine ourselves to make sure that none of these things are indicative of us. Drifting, the hardening of heart, dull of hearing, Hebrews teaches that if not corrected, then these conditions can lead to unbelief. And unbelief leads to falling away. And that's always bad, no matter how you slice last week's text. That's always bad. But be careful how you want to slice last week's text. Because I find, and this is absolutely true, that there is among many Christians... This desire to sort of push the envelope. This desire to say, okay, how bad can I be and still be okay? How far can I go and still be all right with God? How much can I get away with? That's the human inclination. And we transport that fallen mentality into our Christian spirituality and its wickedness. 
But you see, we often approach the Bible that way. We approach the Bible with where are the parameters? How far can I go? What can I do to push the envelope and still be okay? That's a wrong attitude. The attitude of the Christian, the approach to Scripture must be, I want to be holy. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to obey more. I don't want to push the limits. I want to be hemmed in. I want to pull it in. I want to tighten up. I want to be nearer to the Lord and discern to a greater degree the things of his heart. I want to be more intimate with Jesus Christ. It's not how much can I get away with. It's how much can I press into the person of Jesus Christ. And we often have a a wrong approach. You see, we don't want to be grace abusers. We want to be careful lovers. And there's a big difference. And a lot of Christians are grace abusers. Grace covers me here so I can do it. You don't want to be a grace abuser. You want to be a careful lover of the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now, Hebrews gives us very clear instructions as to how to be careful lovers, how to be careful and fruitful in our spirituality. It gives us 10 points in our study thus far. Number one, we're told in chapter two, verse one, that we should pay close attention to the truth that we hear concerning Jesus Christ and the word of God. So how do we have fruitful spiritual lives? Number one, pay close attention. Number two, chapter two, verse 18, go to Jesus for help when we're tempted. Don't vacillate. Don't put it off. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't flirt with it. Flee from it. We often flirt with it. Don't flirt with it, flee from it. When you're tempted, run to the person of Jesus Christ. Point number three, hold fast your confidence in Jesus. Don't waver in that assurance. Hold fast to it, cling to our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Number four, take care of your heart. Watch over your heart. Chapter four, verse 12 says, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Make sure that you're cultivating faith. Be studying apologetics, how to to defend the faith because you will hear every day why Christianity is not valid, why the New Testament can't be trusted. And I'm here to tell you that there's another opinion and it's dang good. And it's that Christianity is valid and the New Testament can be trusted. And so cultivate faith and study the word of God and get into apologetics and watch over your heart to make sure that it's not becoming evil and unbelieving and falling away from the living God. And then we're told in chapter uh, 3 verse 13 to encourage one another. All the more as the day approaches is we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. How do we cultivate right spirituality? Encourage each other. Look to be encouraged and be an encourager. Encourage one another in loving Jesus and walking in the spirit. And then we enter into these five let us statements in Hebrews. The first one is in chapter four, verse one. Let us fear and revere God. We should fear God in his holiness, in his awesomeness. And we should revere God by honoring him with obedience. Let us be diligent to enter God's rest. Chapter four, verse 11. We need to be diligent to enter into in fullness that relationship we have with Jesus Christ, which brings rest and peace that surpasses comprehension. Amen? And then let us hold firmly to what we believe. 
Chapter 4, verse 14. Make up your mind what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ and hold firmly to it. And the more you know the word of God, the easier it's going to be to make up your mind. I'll tell you, if you'll study the Bible, you are convinced of these truths. And then you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. And then number nine, let us come with confidence to the throne of grace. When you're in a time of need, go to the throne of grace. We so often go other places, don't we? We go to everybody else and we do everything else. We go to so-and-so and we go to our own ingenuity and our own resources and know-how, but we need to go to Jesus. And then finally, let us press on toward maturity. The Hebrew church was beginning to give up. But chapter 6, verse 1 says, press on. Don't stop pushing. Don't stop moving forward. Excel in your faith. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're stagnant, break out of it. If you're in a rut, break out of it. Come forward, get hands laid on you. Come and get on your face. Begin to worship Jesus Christ. Commit yourself to the word of God daily. Get some good Christian reading. Commit yourself to prayer, whatever you need to do but press on toward maturity. Don't become stagnant and don't stop pushing. So we have those 10 points. And if we do these things, we have nothing to worry about no matter what might come our way. If we do these things, we will always find ourselves near to the person of Jesus Christ, under the spout where the blessings come out, in the right place. You understand? Are you people okay this morning? I'm about to come down off this pulpit and chuck some <laughs> elbows at you. Need you to be alive this morning. Because Hebrews does teach this idea of if. Don't miss this. Look in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, But Christ as a son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. If. Look at verses 7 and 8. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled and when they tested me in the wilderness. We are God's house if we continue in confidence in who he is. We see another if statement in verse 14 of chapter 3, but we'll start in verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still called today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if... If we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. No matter how you slice it, there is something to be lost if we let go of him. We've got to cling to him. We've got to be aware of deficiencies and, and spiritual wanderings that enter into our lives. Martin Luther said, I check myself every five minutes to make sure I'm in the right place. Put very simply, the Christian must trust Jesus for his or her salvation and must continue in an attitude of trust throughout their salvation experience. 
We're not supposed to abandon that trust, that confidence, that faith, that hope. Because as today's text says, and we'll get there in a moment, this trust is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And that very idea of continuing to trust Jesus, even when we don't understand how things might work out, even when we don't see how things are ever going to be okay again, is the theme for today. Look how this goes. Going back to chapter 6. Look how this goes. After the warning not to fall away, in verses 4 through 8, the author encourages his audience and that he does not think they're going to drift that far. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. And then he expresses what he hopes and expects they will do in light of the warning. Verse 11 of Hebrews 6. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull or indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Notice after that stern warning against falling away, there's two things he wants them to do. He wants them to keep on loving others as long as life lasts, and he wants them to follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. He wants them to continue loving others. Why? Because our love for one another is the evidence of our Christianity. Jesus said that explicitly in John 13, verses 34 and 35, that we will be identified as his disciples by the way that we love one another. And 1 John says that if we say, we, we, if we say that we know God, but we don't love our brother, that we're liars. And so loving one another is the evidence of being regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so he doesn't want us to love one another as some sort of work that will get us somewhere. But rather the idea is if we're loving one another, it means that we're abiding in Christ and we're continuing in faith. And that is a sure evidence of it. As he says in verse 11, this will make certain that what we hope for will be attained. And as it says in verse 12, then we will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. So this is a biggie. We need to check ourselves here. And I need to do this with myself weekly. Weekly I struggle with this. But loving others becomes a litmus test for our spiritual well-being. Loving others becomes a very quick determiner as to whether or not our time in relationship with Jesus Christ is in a good place. I find, don't you find, that if I'm being short with others, it's because my time with Jesus has been short? It's always that way. When I'm cultivating intimacy with Jesus Christ, I'm amazed at who I can love. But when I'm not, when I've gotten sloppy in my walk with Jesus Christ and I'm drifting just a little bit, it's so easy for me to get irritated and angry and short and bitter and divisive. And it happens like that in my life. And so the degree to which we are loving one another is a very quick litmus test. It shows us where we're at in our spiritual well-being and our intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ. We need to check ourselves today. 
So we're to love one another and forgive one another with the love and forgiveness that he gave us. The second thing he wanted them to do was to follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Verse 12 there, in other words, they do not give up and they don't stop believing, but they keep on trusting and so all the benefits of God's promises are going to be experienced by them because they stay in that place of blessing. And so now the author here, in urging them to follow the example of those in Israel's past who have continued in faith and received God's promises, he's going to hold up to them the greatest example in the Old Testament of this, the greatest example in their Jewish minds of this, and that is, he, that is Abraham and God's promises to him. So look in verse 13. Today's text, verse 13 the author says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. And since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God promised. So the author is wanting to encourage them to press on toward maturity to cling to Jesus in the face of opposition. And so he holds up the greatest example of persevering faith in the Hebraic mindset, the person of Abraham. And the fact that God promised and God followed through on making a great nation, namely the nation of Israel, out of Abraham. Understand that Abraham was childless until the age of 86. And he didn't receive the promise on Isaac until he was 100 years old. Sarah being 99 at that time. Being in the latter years of life, at the age of 75, he received the promise from God that God would give him a son and make from him a great nation and nations. And it happened. A tremendous promise that was fulfilled. And this is such a redemptive story for us to think about and apply to our lives. Realize that before Abraham was named Abraham, he was named Abram. Just a slight difference there. But before he was Abraham, he was Abram. And Abram means exalted father or great father. Now, realize how demeaning that was for someone who was childless and in their 70s childless and near the end of life. And he wasn't childless by choice. It was like, oh, I just want to surf my whole life. I'm not going to have any kids. They would interfere. No. In that culture and in that day, posterity was everything. Of course he wanted to have kids. He would have wanted to have many of them. But there was barrenness in the life of Abram and Sarah. And I imagine that it was a, a daily embarrassment to him when someone came up and said, great father, where's your kids? That was his name given to him by his parents, but he had no kids his whole life. And yet God promised to make him the father of a multitude of nations. And so in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And Abraham means father of a multitude or father of many. From great father to father of many. And this change of name 
was done before he ever had the promised son, Isaac. Before God made good on that promise, before there was something to see, God changed his name. So I know that your name has been a shame to you. I know it's been an embarrassment, but I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make you the father of a multitude. And Abraham believed it by faith. But how cool was that of the Lord? How redemptive is that story? That God would change his name, that he'd make it even more potent than the previous one, and then give him children. You see, God deals with our barrenness with those places that are broken in life, that aren't yielding fruit. God wants to meet us in those dry places and minister to us and transform our lives. I'm reminded to what he said, uh, about what he said to Israel. Look in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 53 is that great prophetic chapter about the person Jesus Christ, pierced for our transgressions by his scourging by his wounds we are healed, all that in chapter 53. And then look what it says in chapter 54. In context, it's God speaking to Israel and the fact that he's going to restore them. But this is a picture of God's restorative and redemptive heart for his people. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, and you who have borne no children. How counterintuitive is that? Barren, and he says, shout for joy. God's doing something. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. He's speaking about the restoration of Israel, but this is God's redemptive heart for his people and our barren places. Then he says in verse two, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. That is God's heart for his people when we are broken. When there exists in our lives those barren places, he's a redemptive God. He's a God who restores. He's a God who takes our ashes and gives us beauty. He is a God to whom we can come with a spirit of fainting and he gives us a mantle of praise. He's a God who opens up the door of hope in the valley of Achor or trouble. And that's what he's doing for Abraham. He had no son. And he comes and says, I'm not just going to give you a son when you're 100, but I'm going to make you the father of a nation and nations. And Abraham waited patiently for the promise. Now, yes, he had his difficult moments. Ishmael. He got the promise of the son when he was 75. 11 years later, he decided to take the promise into his own hands. He just figured, well... 
It's been 11 years. Um, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I'm now 86. Look at Sarah. She's 85. Gee whiz, what are we going to do here? Uh, let's take the situation into our own hands. It's actually Sarah's idea. And he had a relationship with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and they birthed Ishmael. He said, maybe God needs a little help. I mean, God helps those who helps himself, doesn't he? That's what your grandma said. The Bible doesn't say that. Grandma made that up. Abraham said, God needs a little help. And so Hagar here, Ishmael. And Abraham brought Ishmael to God and said, Oh, Lord, that Ishmael may live before thee. And God said, No. That's not what I want to do in your life. That's not what I want to do. And Abraham had to wait until he was 100 years old for the promise to be fulfilled. It was a great promise, and it required great faith. And yes, he had his moments of difficulty, and they cost him, and there are consequences. But the great picture of Abraham is that he persevered, and he trusted the Lord, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then once Isaac was born... The Lord asked for him back, Genesis 22. The Lord tested Abraham, and he asked for him back. And what's wonderful is that Abraham had learned so much in 25 years of waiting on the Lord that when the Lord said, I want that promise back, we're told in the Bible, Abraham got up early in the morning. He didn't vacillate. He didn't hymn nor ha. He got up early in the morning to obey the Lord. You see, great character had been built into his life by persevering in faith. And the problem, with, the problem with us is that we give in. And so we never develop character. And so we miss out on the things of God. Great character had been developed in this man because there was a process of waiting. Waiting is work. Nobody likes to wait. There is a work that is accomplished in waiting, though. When we wait on the Lord, the Lord is purging out of our hearts things that ought not to be there. And he's fortifying into our hearts character that needs to be there. And those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. And he waited and he trusted. And that's what God is calling us to do through the book of Hebrews now. And when Abraham obeyed the Lord and put him in a quandary, he had no idea how God could possibly fulfill his promise now if Isaac was going to become a sacrifice because Isaac was his only son. Ishmael didn't count, remember, for the promise of the nation of Israel. How was he going to make good on the promise if he had to sacrifice him? But what he didn't do was second-guess God. And he was over trying to help God now and he's over trying to manipulate the situation and work it. Instead, he just got up and did what God said. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that God went to, or that Abraham went to offer Isaac, believing that God was able to raise him from the dead to make good on his promises. He said, I don't know how God is going to do it, but I believe God can do it. And more than just the fact that he can do it, I believe God will do it. And you see, that enabled him to be radical in his obedience. That simple faith is not real complicated. That simple faith of God is able and God is good enabled him to experience so much. And after Abraham exercised that great faith of taking Isaac up on Mount Moriah, the same piece of bedrock 
where the temple would later be constructed. The same piece of bedrock that extended to Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. After he took him to Mount Moriah and the Lord spared his son, Abraham continued to exercise great faith. And at that point, God reiterated his promise and he swore by himself. That's why it says here at the end of verse 13, since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, verse 14, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. He's quoting here Genesis 22, 17, where after Abraham passed the test, God reiterated the promise and swore by himself. And what we're told in verse 15 is then Abraham waited patiently. I mean, he could have said, wow, God, give me a break. This isn't fair. Nobody else is going through this. I already waited 25 years. Now I come up on Mount Moriah and I do this whole thing and now I got to wait some more. And that's the attitude of so many Christians. This isn't fair. Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? The thing we've got to realize is it's not about you. It was so much bigger than Abraham. It was so much bigger than Abraham. But had he not exercised faith in the person of God, that never would have been realized. And so it says, Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Do you practice this in your life? In the situations that are before you, the difficulties, the trials, the uncertainties, we all have them, right? Are we practicing patience and waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord? That was a challenge before the Hebrews. They didn't see how life was gonna work out. I mean, they just couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. They just couldn't see it ever making sense. And the author is reminding them that their father Abraham had chosen to exercise faith in the face of tremendous difficulty. And note this well. Hebrews says that because of this, he experienced the promise that God had made. Abraham waited patiently and received what God had promised. If he had not, he would not have. Because he waited and trusted, he experienced the promise. And the reason, very simple now, listen. The reason that Abraham trusted and waited was because he simply took God at his word. Something I find we seldom do. He simply took God at his word. He hadn't made it convoluted. He hadn't made it difficult. He just believed God. He was just that naive. God said it, and for Abraham, that settled it. Look what the next verses say, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Verse 17, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Notice that phrase. God in Genesis 22, 17, quoted here, swore by himself. You know, you know we say, and I don't know that we should say, but we say, I swear to God. You know, I used to say that my mom would slap my mouth. 
But who does God swear by? Himself. In Genesis 22, 17, that's what he did. And the reason here in verse 17, the second part of it, those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. This is wonderful. That's the hope that God wants us to have. He wants us to be perfectly sure and assured that he is absolutely faithful to his word, to his name, to his character, to his precepts, and to his promises, and that he is bigger than our problems. And no matter how much the world doesn't make sense, God's word makes sense. And so get over the world and get into God's word, and things become a little more clear. And here's what that means effectively in light of what Hebrews has been saying. Listen very carefully. Here's what that means effectively in light of what Hebrews has been saying. God's part is sure. It is absolute. All we have to do on our part is continue to trust and exercise faith. We do have a part. And God's part is finished, it is sure, it is guaranteed, it is absolute. Our part is to continue to trust and to exercise faith. Remember, there is divine responsibility or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both of those exist in Scripture. There is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And God's sovereignty never functions to mitigate human responsibility. We have a human responsibility, a call by God to trust, to abide, to believe, to follow, especially when it doesn't make sense or is difficult or hard or challenging. God promised his part is absolutely sure. Our part is to trust and abide by and in faith. We're familiar with the necessity of this from a very, uh, from a favorite passage in James chapter one. James one verses five through eight reads this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to them. There's a promise, but look what the next verse says, verse six. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We see a promise given by God, and then the scriptures say that we lay hold of it by faith. And so we're told, again in verse 12, that we are to follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Again, chapter three, verse 14. If we are faithful to the end, trusting God as firmly as when we first believed, we shall share in all that belongs to Christ. Chapter three, verse six. If we are God, and we are God's house, if we keep courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. You see, God is faithful. God is good. God is in the times of difficulty and uncertainty and heartbreak, God is your best option. He's always the best option. Don't be deceived. Obeying him is always the right call. He's always the best option. The point of the book of Hebrews is that he is better. Better than what? Everything. Jesus is better than everything. 
And so when things get gnarly in life, go to him. That's what Hebrews is saying. Don't bail out. Go to him. I'm reminded of Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 21. The author says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good. He is sure. Our part is to wait on him, to trust, to cling to, to press in. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 of Hebrews 6 says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, notice this, therefore, we who have fled to him, we who have fled to him, are you in that? Are you in that statement? We who have fled to him for refuge, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. As we hold, as we hold, we have great confidence. But the flip side of that coin is if you let go, you have no confidence. If you're holding on to Christ, the word of God gives you great assurance. But if you're letting go of and drifting from Christ, then it offers you no assurance, but only a stern warning to return. Yes, Jesus holds us, but we must hold him as well. The Bible never says, let go of God and your faith, and ease up, and everything will be okay. It doesn't say that. Christians love this quaint saying, let go and let God. That's partially biblical, but it's not let go of God. We would never say that. We know he's holding us in his hand, but we know we've got to cling to him. If you haven't gotten that message in Hebrews, you haven't heard a dang thing. Hebrews is telling us we must cling to the person of Jesus Christ no matter what comes our way. And instead of letting go, as we cling to the Lord, we're encouraged. I hope you've been reading your Bibles this week. This week has been the most incredible week for the one-year Bible reading. It's my favorite time of the year. We've been in Psalms and Romans. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Psalms and Romans. It's been incredible. One of the Psalms that we just read a couple days ago was Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 2. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in him. Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Did you get that? If you're not getting into the word, then you don't know what his faithful promises are. And so you're left naked against the onslaught of the enemy. Because his faithful promises are your armor and your protection. 
Psalm 91 verse 14, the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. Romans, we've been reading this week. Romans 15 verse 4 part B, the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Romans 15 verse 13, Paul says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Christian, if your life is lacking joy and peace, it may be that you're not trusting in him. Sure, you got drama. We've all got drama. But if we're trusting in him, we should be experiencing joy and peace that transcend the circumstances in spite of the circumstances. Then, Paul says, you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are told in Hebrews 6, verse 18, therefore we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Have you fled to him? Are you making him your refuge? And the decisions you've got to make today, this week, is he your refuge? Are you clinging to him? Are you leaning out on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledging the Lord? When you do that, you can have great confidence because he'll make your path straight. Do you have great confidence right now even though your life doesn't make sense? We can in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not because of us, it's, not, it's because of him. It's not because circumstances are good or bad, it's because he is good and faithful. And as we hold on, what does that mean in your present difficulties? What does it mean to hold on? What does it mean in your present difficulties? What does it mean? All of our dramas are different. What does it mean? You need to figure that out and you need to do that. And then it says we have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Jesus spoke of this hope in John 14. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That is the hope that lies before us, that we shall one day be in glory with Jesus Christ. And Paul, who knew what it was to encounter difficulties, even in obeying, said, I don't consider these present sufferings and dramas even worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see in Christ Jesus on that day. Verse 19. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. We need an anchor. In this world, in this life, in this culture, in this climate, we need an anchor. And this hope of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our salvation accomplished, is an anchor to our souls. And for ancient sailors, an anchor was not only for mooring. They had several anchors on the boat. The anchor was there to hold them in place, but it was also there to slow them down when they were being blown by a storm. And in the storms of life, we need that anchor 
It says that this is a, that's hope is, is strong and trustworthy. That word strong stresses something that is indestructible from outside forces. No outside force, including Satan or culture, can destroy the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's strong. The Greek word denoting strength from outside forces. Nobody can come and steal our hope. And then the word trustworthy or steadfast or secure refers to the inner strength of that hope and that anchor. Meaning that that hope has no innate weaknesses which may fail over time. There's no inward flaw. There's no deficiency in this hope. It's reliable. It's well-founded. It is confirmed. And this means that our hope in Jesus Christ, rather than being based on emotions or wishful thinking, it provides a firm basis for a life of stability. A life of stability and growth and blessings and peace. And this anchor, it says at the end of verse 19, leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. That is to say that the anchor is in the inner sanctuary. Trip out on this picture. The anchor is in the inner sanctuary. Understand the curtain. The curtain was that veil that separated the holy place where we had the showbread and the candelabra and the altar of incense where the priests would minister daily. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Jewish writings tell us that it was 18 inches thick in the second temple. This incredible veil that separated the holy place, which many priests experienced, the holy of holies, which was where God's presence was, where only one priest could enter one time a year. The holy place representing the earthly worshiping life of God's people, the holy of holies representing God's presence. And the curtain hung between the two as per God's design. And when we take that Old Testament picture of the two sides together, they symbolize a spiritual reality that we are familiar with. God's presence in heaven and the storm-tossed worshiping church below. That's exactly who these Hebrew Christians were. They were the storm-tossed church below. But you see, an anchor is hurled from the storm-tossed church into God's presence. It goes through the veil. It's hurled from the church, from God's worshiping people, into God's presence. And when the anchor is hurled, instead of sinking to the depths, it rises, so to speak, grabs hold of the presence of God where Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, having completed his sacrificial priestly work, and we become anchored to him and his character. And then all we need to do is stay fastened to the line. The anchor is hooked. It's hooked on the person of Jesus Christ in the presence of God in the inner sanctuary. The anchor is sure and steadfast. All we need to do is hold on to that line. The anchor is unmovable, and any sailor knew that a firm anchorage meant security. And if one is well anchored, it does not matter how hard the winds blow or the waves beat. You can weather the storm. And the final verse says this. Jesus has already gone in there for us. 
He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's already gone in there for us, into the Holy of Holies, so to speak, into the presence of God. Jesus has entered as a forerunner, another translation says. He's entered as a forerunner. Think of that word, forerunner. We are assured access into the presence of God because Jesus has entered as a forerunner. You see, this was a brand new idea for these Jews because the Levitical priests, when they entered into the presence of God, they did not do so as forerunners. They did so as representatives. And there's a great difference. A representative is a sample portion. Only I will come and represent all the others. But a forerunner goes before with the intent of bringing the others with him. And the priests throughout the Old Testament, only one is representatives. Jesus comes and into the presence of the Father as a forerunner intending to bring his people with him. In ancient harbors in the Mediterranean, they would fasten, they would embed a giant stone right on the shore. It would be embedded there. This stone would be big and it would be immovable though it was right near the water. This was called the anchor. And it was for the mooring of the vessels. The large vessels would come in with their sails and they would tie off to that anchor which was immovable and on the shore and they knew that they were fine. But sometimes in contrary winds and times of difficulty because of their sails, the vessel couldn't make it to the anchor. They couldn't get close enough to throw a line and to be secure. And so what those large sailing ships would do is send out a little boat and this boat was called the forerunner. And the little boat would row against the waves and the wind and it would come to the anchor which was immovable and it would fasten a line and it would bring the line back out to the rest of the population. And all they had to do was hold the line and they knew that the anchor was sure. That's us with Jesus Christ. He is absolutely faithful. All we need to do is hold the line. And those sailors would slowly, hand over hand, pull that ship to safety. Just keep pulling near to the person of Jesus Christ. God said, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Amen? Praise you, Lord. Thank you for these wonderful promises. Thank you that you're so good as to do that, Lord, to bring us near. Thank you for the cross, your substitutionary death by which we are accepted. Lord, bring us near. Bring us deeper into your heart, further into your presence, Lord. Lord, there's wind and there's waves and all sorts of things in this world, including our flesh, are contrary. We want to be fastened to you, Jesus Christ. And though most of us can't even imagine the persecution that this Hebrew church was facing, we've got our own little dramas. And they're just as real to us right now. So come help your people, Lord. Meet us in our barren places, in our broken places. Do with us what you did with Abraham. But teach us to trust, Lord. Teach us to abide. Prayer team is here if you need help this morning.